You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a storm woven up, down, in and out, like If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to More Than This. This is Brooke here today, and I am joined by David. Hi, David. Hello, Brooke. Good to see you. We are distant today, so unfortunately, we are not sitting on across each other at David's big table, but uh, hopefully Zoom will work and all our technology will work as well. This uh, episode, we are entitling, Who Are We? And we are wanting to engage with exactly what that is, identity and the process of identity formation that we have gone through, through our lives, where we're at now, where we've been. Um, And we want to start with Dr. Hartman (laughs) giving us a little... How do you how do you call it, David? <laughs> oh, I'll use the term "lay of the land." How about that? I don't know. Some something to ground to ground this and make this sound quasi academic. But yeah, yeah, we're we you and I were talking before about identity theory, and uh, that can mean many different things. I actually teach a course on identity at uh, the seminary where I work, which I'm excited to offer again. It's one of my favorite courses to teach. But I think we, we talk about identity a lot um, in modern society, and it often has a it's, it has a word in front of it as a prefix, right? Sometimes we talk about you know gender identity or sexual identity or political identity, or you know we, we tend to have these sort of hyphenated or you know something with a prefix in front of it, and then a word identity. So right. uh, and I think one of our the ways we understand identity is that. It's kind of multiple, right? We have multiple identities that pertain maybe to different roles we play within different institutions, within our family, um, and then some that are just more about preference and deciding some of the contours of who we are. But um, I think probably the most famous uh, developmental theorist who looked at the idea of identity was Eric Erickson, who was an interesting character in and of himself. Uh, literally, he named him Eric's son like he was like the son of himself like he he like had no father he disowned his father and like eric erickson basically means like i am of my own like i am my own man like nobody oh owns me yeah, yeah so what a character what a what a character and what an identity story that must have been yeah but like a lot of the, the people that wrote throughout the 20th century uh he was a stage theorist so people have a lot of problems with stage theories. And if you've done like a psych 101 class, uh, like a lot of our listeners may have, you've probably heard of people like Piaget or Freud or, you know, Eric Erickson, very popular. And they theorize that development happens. People go through certain stages uh, of Hmm. development. And there's a, a, a guy named Fowler who has a stages of spiritual development. I think we've talked about that on the show before. You may have run into that in your spiritual direction training, Brooke. Yes. Stages uh, of faith, different things like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And these are uh, 
the, the stage theories themselves are kind of controversial today because nobody likes to be epitomized. Um, nobody likes to be told how they, they develop in a normative way. Uh, but, and these often claim some sort of universality. Everybody kind of goes through the same stages in the same order. And some cultural scholars would say that that's not true. Certain cultures, these are maybe Western influence stages that other cultures, other regions of the world don't exactly develop the same way. These are not normative, but anyhow, Erickson was the first to really opine about identity, uh, that we really know about and read about. So he has many stages. Um, bless him. He has eight. <laughs> <laughs> eight Is he American? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, 99% sure. Yeah. Now that you asked me, I'm like, boy, I never thought about it. He may not be now that I think about it. So I won't edit this out. I'll just look the fool, but I can't remember suddenly. <laughs> I apologize for asking. No, it's good. <laughs> I caught you out. <laughs> he definitely, he's no, definitely was His definitely Western. I, I'm think he's, I think he's American. Either way, he talks a lot about identity development. Uh, he has a basic conflict, uh, like a developmental task that's framed as a conflict in each stage of life. So, as an infant, he talks about trust versus mistrust. Uh, that's like his first, you know, first developmental obstacle, a thing you have to sort of resolve in life. And then he goes through and he has stages that go from like one to three, ages roughly ages three to six, seven to 11. And then 12 to 18 is where we find our topic du jour. Uh, the struggle there of development is identity versus confusion. Hmm. And this is where he really hasn't marked out where I, the quest for identity really begins uh, in human development. And we can think back, Brooke, we're, we're old enough that you, well, <laughs> I'm older than you, but you probably remember some of those 80s movies, right? Like um, like The Breakfast Club and like Pretty in Pink and like some of those teen films from the 80s yes. or even like Saved by the Bell, which has just been rebooted, which I think will probably be pretty tragic, but uh Ooh. Yeah, yeah, they're they're wheeling all the old timers back out. I'm I'm sure it's not going to be great, but you can remember some of the the identity sort of classifications like jocks and nerds and cheerleaders and cool kids and losers and burners and you know all mm-hmm. these different skaters. It was a big identity for a while, um, and you know the idea that people are really playing with identity in their teens has been popular for a long time. It's been popularized in movies. But that's really where he says it comes into play. And he says that there's sort of a, a moratorium. He calls it a moratorium, which means it's kind of a free zone where you get to try out different identities. And it's like none of them have to be binding. You, you just kind of – it's a free zone to kind of play around and figure out who you are, what you want to be. That can come down to choosing a profession, right, thinking about a vocation. You know, you think about starting college, choosing a major, setting yourself on a career course. And I think he has this stage mar- uh, ending around age 18. And then okay. the next decade is dedicated toward uh, questions of intimacy versus isolation, which are solidly predicated on identity. So he says, you know, your identity work is directly related to the, the intimacy that you go on to form or not form. Um, so, and then and identity versus isolation. That's your twenties. Uh, intimacy versus isolation. That's your twenties. Yep. And according to him, I, I think that a lot of this stuff has been protracted. 
I think we our rites of passage are all different now than when he wrote. And I think uh, obviously things are not always so neat and tidy as we go through life. I think that identity versus confusion thing can really follow us a lot longer through our 20s and into our 30s maybe even now. And and maybe it was always a bit that way, but I think mm-hmm. we definitely have more arrested development. That's been my experience in terms of figuring out who I am and the cement really hardening in any sort of way on who I am. I think we often mm-hmm. resist that too. So uh, that's kind of Erickson's spin um, on going through there. And you can either be foreclosed um, in your identity, which is the idea that you own something without really exploring it. So people can just sort of like, Maybe in traditional societies, identity exploration is a fairly privileged idea um, and more rigid <laughs> social caste yeah. systems. You don't get to explore. It's it's prescribed to you who you are, what you're to do, maybe what you'll make, who you're to marry, where you're to live, those sort of opportunities. And even the poorest of us probably in the West have more degrees of freedom than a lot of a lot of a lot of societies do when it comes to identity construction. So, really interesting. I think as I listen to you, I what I find really helpful is uh, the terms, because as I'm listening to them, you know, identity confusion, intimacy, isolation, these sorts of terms. Something in me is saying like, oh yeah, I know those terms. Ah. Now they may not. It may have not you know, ended at 18 and then that started at 20, like you're saying, I think these stages can last longer, but those words are so, they're words that at least for me, they, they're like, Oh, Oh, this guy, he got something right here. You know? (laughs) Yeah. There's a ring of, there's a ring of recognition there. Right. It's like, I don't know if all the the dates and times things are right in durations, but he gets something about the struggle to figure out Mm -hmm. who we are Mm -hmm. as people. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think for myself personally, I start to think about my upbringing and how I thought about myself and engaged the world. And I know one thing that I found to be true for a very, that I thought to be true for a very long time was that my upbringing and what had happened to me was uh, like a curse upon me because mm. I had been raised oh. in one country and then had moved at age 10 to another country and then had another move. And so I never felt like I belonged. And so I had this feeling of that, that feeling of not belonging felt like a curse and not that I felt like I was, was cursed, but I felt like I, there was something that I was always hobbling along. I never quite belonged. I never got the jokes. I never got you know, and it still happens today. Like you talk about these 80s shows and I nod and I'm like, oh yeah, ha, ha. but I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and so like that little bit of, and, and so that was a lie for a long time of, oh, I don't belong. I don't really fit here because I don't know these certain things because I was raised this part of my life. But then over time, that sense of curse actually became something that it, I actually realized that sense of not fully belonging, that sense of being able to feel at home in multiple pools of places, sometimes simultaneously, is actually a great gift. Is actually, I can be a bridge to people that are very different than myself. You know, so things like that, like something I believe to be super, super true, there's this curse, actually 
completely changed through my 20s, you know, and now I'm almost headed into my 40s. And that's long been changed now. It's long decided like that thing. There's other deep identity stuff going on. <laughs> but that 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 sense of curse versus then, oh, wait, this is blessing. That was something that really happened through my teens and 20s. That's- How was it for you, David? Was has there been a sort of I mean, granted, there's so many things we can we can point to in our life. We've lived so many years. Um, well, my parents would laugh at us. Say, like, oh, you, you've lived nothing yet. But our portion of years, it's a chunk of years. Did you experience something similar, like something that you believed early on that sort of shifted as you? Yeah, there are several things. And interestingly, Brooke, I think a lot of these transitions for me are rooted in relationship. So one of the things and this is I'm going to because I think a lot about identity as as an academic and a counselor mm-hmm. um I'll probably add some nuggets that may or may not be helpful along the way please please <laughs> but I think one of the things in the west that we really buy into when it comes to identity is that we have a privileged view of self that we mm. are have primacy like we are the best the best knowers of who we are Yes. And actually, one of my students in class the other day intimated this, and I usually don't push back on my students too hard, but I was like, I disagree. And as a therapist, like, I would take concern at that thought because the times I've learned about myself the most, for good or for ill, were usually through other people. One of the model we're mm. sort of presented with is that you are supposed to be individually sovereign when it comes to your identity. You go... It's the constructivist model, right? Where you sort of choose the identity kit that you want and you sort of manifest it. You just live it out. You know, you wear the clothes, you like wear the the glasses you want, the hairstyle, the piercings and, you know, the sexual orientation and gender orientation or whatever, whatever it is that you're Mm -hmm. like, was like, we are the ones who gets to say that. We're the ones who know ourselves the best. And it's usually by looking in. Mm. And... I would say that the things that have been the biggest identity transitions for me where I've learned the most about myself and been disabused of things that aren't probably weren't true were at the hands of other people, like um, others who, you know, were important to me, you know? So, um, you know, one of the, I think, I think growing up, I thought I was an introvert maybe in a certain way um, that I was, I was quiet. I was shy. I was withdrawn. And really what I, I was is I was not confident. So, and that can be, I think a, for a lot of people, that can be a big, a big thing. But one of the things I learned, I used to be terrified to speak in public. Um, you know, just what didn't occur to me as the strength, anything that I thought I was good at. I was out of practice. A lot of, a lot of people aren't very practiced when they're young at speaking in public, but considering what I do now and what I've done for years, I speak in public. I teach. I train. Um, I have a podcast. Um, yeah. And I've, so it was sort of an evolution of learning that I was one that I was actually smart. Mm. Two that I could uh, actually speak in front of people and to good effect. And three, I learned that I was a teacher. That I was good. I had a certain kind of mind. Like I, I thought academically, the way I thought was not universal or even that common and it was valuable and I, I learned all of those things by significant others in my life so people I, speaking 
things to you, pointing things out that you didn't notice. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So I, I'm writing a book on this actually, but the role of other, basically the role of others and in, in the larger stories that we envelop and in, in their impact on our identity as a counter to some of the ways that we're, we're taught to construct our own identities, which really don't work that well. <laughs> as you say that, I immediately think of like, wow, what power we have in our words, right? To, I was, I see this funny little picture of like a magic wand and like tapping something and bringing something out in someone that someone didn't see. Yeah. It's so I, beautiful. It, it is. And sometimes it's quite simple. Uh, to be confronted. A lot of times we don't even know the identities that we're operating out of. I don't think Uh, so a conversation like this presupposes a certain level of awareness that maybe um, if you are foreclosed in Erickson's terms that you just sort of embrace an identity, take it on without ever reflecting on it and you're just acting through it. You're especially open maybe to somebody who would come and question and say, I see you differently, or I see that differently. Have you thought about this? This is not what I see. It's incongruent. And I think sometimes those incongruencies come up on us where maybe you're, you started a major, right? And you're like this, there's something, I don't know why, but I hate this with like the heat of a thousand suns. Like this doesn't fit, or I'm in a relationship or I'm in a job. Uh. And it's like, this yeah. just rubs against the grain of me and I may not have words for it, but that's something to do with our identity, right? Maybe mm-hmm. undiscovered. I was a business major, Brooke, when I first started. Can you imagine? Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know that. What an, what an <laughs> awful idea because I'm very pragmatic. So I thought this will help me make money. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, everything about this I hate. Uh, I wonder why, why that is. And, you know, somebody who's a little more self-aware uh, may have been like, well, I could – probably something about how you're wired, right? Absolutely. And well, and what's really funny, David, is that now you you're starting a business. Yeah. You have multiple businesses. Yeah. So, in some ways it came around full circle, but yeah, as putting on a whole coat of business degree, yeah, I could imagine that. <laughs> what? Who is that? <laughs> yeah. I also as you were talking, I was thinking about I used to teach art um, to elementary and middle schoolers. And my favorite age was a grade four because it was in grade three, three, four, where uh, you could get to kids just before they decided they were an artist or they were not an artist. Something happened around that age, age three or four, that they made a decision. And then it sounds sad, but they were almost goners from there on out. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, the kids who had decided that they were not artists just, it was so hard for them. They had this, such a low, like this load that they carried. It wasn't even fun, you know? But until that grade, three, four, you could, you could get to certain kids and, and just encourage them. And I think that too, for us as adults, you know, what are the things, like you said, you know, I'm not, I wasn't smart. I wasn't all these things. Like, what are the things that we can kind of bypass and, and maybe a different, like a, a true thing, a true word can be, can be spoken. I think that that idea of identity bypass is easier for kids too. Sometimes it's easier because um, identity, the fact that you are some way doesn't mean you don't, that you don't have work to do. Right. Part mm. of, part of my identity growing up is I didn't like to work hard. I wanted instant success because I had fragile ego strength. Uh, uh, and yeah. 
So I remember quitting being very good at soccer on the playground. But then when it came to formal soccer, I joined the school team in fifth grade. I was very young and I wasn't met with instant success, like having to play, like go through formalized drills and strategy and mm-hmm. things like that. I had just sort of like honed a little bit of natural talent and it was being beaten out of me. Like my instincts were, had developed incorrectly and I wasn't going to be a starter cause I was small and I was slow, you know, like, I was the youngest on the team and every year matters developmentally a lot at that age. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember quitting after a few practices because it wasn't fun. And basically I had work to do and my parents were gracious. They let me quit. Um, I rejoined the next year and I, I never looked back, but there was something in me. And I think a lot of times we just don't want to do the work that the, the way we're wired requires, you know? That's well put. And I, well, I start to think of the, the, the terms, um, true self and false self, David. Oh yeah. And as you were talking about, you know, it was through people that you started to know yourself more. Would you start to use those terms? Do you think those are terms that start to apply as, uh, we discuss that or is, are those different things? Well, you're, you're, uh, I think they apply, but you're, you're pushing at something here to this. Somebody's an identity scholar. Um, modern identity construction is sort of a mix because it's part constructivist that the idea that we get to go out and create whatever we want of ourselves. Americans mm-hmm. uh, especially believe that anybody can be anything. I once worked with a woman who would tell people that she trained that everybody in the class could be president of the United States. And it made my head want to explode because Literally, not everybody could. Not everybody would live long enough to serve four years as president, even if they all magically were elected to the office. Um, And I was like, you can't tell people that. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this idea that we're constructivists, but also that we can get back to some sort of innate way that we're made, right? That we are born Mm -hmm. a certain way. Think of Lady Gaga's wisdom. Uh, I was born this way, right? Like, Mm. Like there is something we're trying to get back to that, the cruel world has, you know, beaten out of us. We were all innocent as children. So there's this like sort of happy nativist, like innate view, but then also this constructivist view. So we are free to discover ourselves again on our own, like our own identity project. We're supposed to get sort of like fundamentalism. You go back to this sort of like happy time when society had not messed you up and you figure out the pure you and then figure out how to carry that forward into adulthood and manifest that. Mm-hmm. I have some misgivings about that model. Yeah. So some of some of the false self, true self language that we're sort of using, I think it's probably good enough language. But I also, uh, I have a little bit of fear and trembling about declaring because sometimes we, out of our own ego, be like, that's my false self. My true self is this. I think there's something right about it. But I also think that it can also be a little bit of a trap. So I would use that language about these things. I do think some things about are about me that were, were false or, or underdeveloped or are no longer useful mm-hmm. have fallen away. Well, and I think maybe those terms, David, tell me if you would agree I th- that they're mo- they are more useful it, when we engage like spiritual formation. Can we engage the work of God happening in with, with, a, with within us? I think they become yep. more useful. 
How do you see them? Um, how do you see that utility uh, amping up in when you look at them through that frame? Well, I think they're, yeah, I think for me, they're, oh, okay. I, I think of, um, you know, uh, Pope Francis when he was, uh, elected or whatever the term is chosen uh, a number Poked. of years ago, they, there was an interview by a Jesuit uh, 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 director and he asked him, his first question to him was, so who is Jorge da da da? I can't remember his forename name, Pope Francis, how we know him. Who is he? And uh, Pope Francis's response was, he paused and he said, I am a sinner upon whom God has looked. And that really stuck with me and has continued to stick with me for a very long time. That idea of the two realities, I am a sinner and God has looked upon me. And so we, I am not able to lean too far on the side of, you know, I'm wonderful. I'm great. I have all these gifts to give the world or I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. I have all this stuff that I still need to go to counseling for and all these ways that I hurt all my loved ones all around me all the time, you know, and you can either, you know, you can pivot from one to the other, but with that statement, I am a sinner upon whom God has looked. The two are linked and they stay linked and they can't unlink. And I think for me, that's a bit of that false self, true self, where the true self identifies, I am deeply loved and I am deeply flawed, both. Uh, The false self starts to look, I think, again, either extreme, either one, too highly of myself or two, too lowly of myself. I don't think that's a word, but do you get get my drift? Yeah, I, I do. That makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes we like to think about uh, I think the the edges of ourself that are false or uh, maybe get uh, sheared off in the course of relationship. And I think sometimes if the worst way, like if you want to maintain a false self, intimacy is not your friend. Superficiality is your friend. Like yes. I remember, this is painful to admit, but I remember uh, in the mid 2000s, I had a, a string of, of fairly short relationships And I realized that I would break up with, with women round about the time that I was no longer perfect when the the glittering image was no longer there, when there'd been some conflict or I'd failed somebody, it was usually around the three months mark and it happened a few times. So I had some data points (laughs) and I was like, this is probably, this is probably me. Uh, And it wasn't anything, but it was, it wasn't anything fatal, but sometimes a false self is like, we hold on to that really hard. And I would, mm. I would, I think that sometimes um, in the context of the work and what God has called us to, who we are comes, we, we often try to put the cart in front of the horse and say, I need to figure out who I am devoid of context and then choose the context I want to be. I choose the person I want to marry, choose the person I want to date, choose the career I want to have all based on this knowledge of me. And, all outside of the context of relationship, relationship to a job, relationship to a faith community, a mm. community that you live in, you know, 
people who depend on you, we want to sort of figure out who we are in absence of those things. And the times that I have figured out areas of my false self, the most and those have been illuminated, have been in relationship and they've been uh, through committing to something or someone. So I see that too. And um, the Pope Francis is somebody who committed to a life of service. And I think, yeah. Without an idea of bringing the spiritual formation into it, a lot of us want to take enneagrams and sit around and like pray and those are all good things and figure out who we are in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. But often what God's calling us to do and the people we're called in to be committed to and do life with are the things that really speak to about the true and false self. So we might have a, an idea of true self and then commitment is the thing that shears off the parts that or reforms them, right? Yes. Or another word, pain. The ouch, the ouch experiences that you kept experiencing in those yes. short relationships. Like, yeah. oh wait, there's a theme here. I'm the theme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you're always so waiting for that other shoe to drop that somebody's going to discover the part of you that you don't want them to know. And maybe right. you haven't had the courage to face. So you say it it's about somebody else or something else. And, and one thing also I'm hearing around the edges of what you're talking about is that there, there is not an infinite amount of possibilities to who I am. Nope. There is also a limitation to who I am. There are clear things that I am not. Yes. Um, and I could spend my whole life trying to press into what I'm not and trying to be that. And I may get a couple inches or a couple feet, but it probably will not be a truly happy brook at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I also find it interesting to consider where there are limitations in some respects where freedom, where we can experience freedom and identity as we start to learn who we are not as well yeah, and, and own yeah. it. I, limitations are, are part, part of the, where I, where I think both of us are sitting as we talk about this, Limitations can be so freeing, but they were, we are not taught that. I was no. thinking about this today. I'm like, when is it better to accept something and when is it better to challenge it and grow? Like we're always taught that growth, like, you know, grow, 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 take on yes. challenges. Don't shy away from a challenge. Don't just accept things. Our culture teaches us that. Our churches teaches us teach us that. Yeah. But then you think about leadership on any sort of level. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, boy, how bad is it if you are working with a leader that does not know his or her limitations and has mm-hmm. never become conversant with them? I One of mine, this is going to sound really silly, I used to, everybody in America, I think, wants to be seen as laid back. Like nobody wants to be like, especially women, like called high maintenance or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And God forbid, I'm not owning like some high maintenance identity where I just get to be a you know, absolute entitled prick, you know, and like just, you know, but I'm not totally laid back. Like I have limitations. (laughs) Like I need a certain amount of structure. Like I I used to, and again, relationship has brought this out. Being with my wife has taught me that I am not laid back about everything. And there are things that I really care about that uh, I may be embarrassed that I care about. And she's like, I don't really care about that. Like that's kind of your thing. Yeah, it's weird, but like it's not that big a deal, right? Um, and just realizing, boy, 
that we belong to each other and we need each other. This is part of identity as well. Like we, we really, our identities are all intermingled with the people that are around us. And if we can't acknowledge our limitations, we can't acknowledge the need of another person. And that's a barrier to intimacy also. Yes. And if we can't acknowledge our limitations, we also can't acknowledge the limitations of others. Right. Right. And we can't show compassion to others. And I think that is also so important. Like, wow, I need my relationship to myself and I tend to be super hard on myself. I have this like inner judge that is just yelling and cruel. And, uh, but for me, part of the inner work of trying to quiet that voice, try to engage that voice, try to walk down the path. Like, where is this voice connected? Why is this voice continually coming up in these sorts of situations? For me, it, I, I make myself pay attention to those things for the sake of others, I think, because, Brooke, you got to get this dealt with in yourself because there is no way to create a wall between this is how you treat yourself and you don't treat others that way. That may be a, a wall that you think doesn't exist, but no, it spills over. <laughs> so my friends and my family, I mean, for their sake, I have to deal with this internally because I don't want this to spill over, you know, to lack of compassion to others or this judgment, you know, people can sense that stuff. <laughs> what, what are some limitations that you've, you've learned about yourself that have been kind of a grace to you? in terms of unlocking intimacy, self-acceptance, reliance on God? I think, um, well, yeah, a number. The, the main one I think of is, um, well, and this realization came through some counseling as well. So that was extra hard, <laughs> but extra good, um, was the sense of I have to be strong. Mm. So I felt like, I still do feel like I have to be strong and I have to have it together. And it's recognizing that one, I'm not always strong. <laughs> and two, I don't have it together all the time. Like that is, I mean, actually that's more than limitation. Like that's just human, right? I'm human. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a period in my life that I, as I looked at myself from a, third person point of view, I realized I was acting like superwoman mm. and I was operating like, like trying to be like God, uh, to put it a different way. And it was, it was friends actually similar to your experience, David, it was friends that said like, Brooke, we love you. And how can I, like, I actually want to help you. Like, but you, you never ask for help, you know, Yeah. but I want to love you. And, and, and one way that, that we allow people to love us is by letting them help us. So like, let me help you. <laughs> and that was even just that offer of help was an aha for me of, oh, wait, I'm limited. I can't do everything. Or maybe I can do a lot, but actually by realizing, wait, I want help. I want to let this person, that also allows me to experience love. But isn't it, isn't it painful at the same time to see those limitations? Because sometimes we're really invested in the false perception, right? That, that we don't have a limitation or we're good at something where we're not, or we can sort of pull off things that we just can't pull off. Well, and that strength got, like I did good by that strength for a, for a long time. 
I was able to do things in my life because of that strength. So it wasn't completely useless to me, but it was no longer helping me at that point in my life. You know, like, for example, desiring to be in a relationship or different things I was really actively desiring at that point in my life. And this sense of always having to be strong, always having to have again, never showing vulnerability was actively working against that desire. So I literally almost had to say, you have been very helpful for periods of my life. I was able to make moves internationally. I was able to do all these things because of that strength, because of that independence. And now you are no longer helpful. So goodbye. (laughs) I almost had to like wish it goodbye. Thank you for what you've done. And now I'm, I want to lean into vulnerability. I want to lean into my limitations. (laughs) And I think sometimes we, we can get so good at selling uh, maybe not even a false self, but just uh, an inflated self, like an overview, like you probably are strong and good at holding things together, but not all the time, right? Sometimes yes. we're faking it. And mm-hmm. there was an uh, expression that Kara will look, uh, give me the side eye if somebody says it now because it's become a code, but this was said a lot of me when I was in grad school. Um, I would often be given like inadequate preparation time instruction and given a task and somebody I call it uh empowerment by abandonment that somebody would come to me and be like hey do this thing make the, make this presentation take on this project like do this and leave me ill equipped mm. and then their usual word of encouragement was well if anybody can do it you can uh. and uh that became like just a curse to my ears to hear that Cause I associated that with like, Oh, this means you're leaving. This means you're like, you know, you're being really crappy to me right now. And like giving me not what I need to get this done, but because I've pulled it out in the past for you, you think I can do it again. And you're expecting that of me and you're giving me like this, you know, so, uh, I, that's a side, side compliment, but actually abandonment. Yeah. But I was like the, the, and I probably had supported that by saying, nonchalant, you know, like, Oh, I'm laid back. I can do it. Oh, sure. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And I had, you know, answered the bell so many times. Like I probably taught people to say that. Yes. And it's like, the truth was I was so busy because I was working full time. I was working for a think tank doing research and full time in grad school as a PhD student and research assisting there and trying to be in the first year of my marriage. It was like, no, I can't do all these things. I have limitations. And the fact that you just walk away saying, well, if anybody can do it, you can. Like the flattery isn't enough to fill you for the task. So, mm. Mm. Oh, Beautiful. I think we probably need to wrap up here. We could chat and chat and chat. Um, but I think about one phrase maybe as we wind down is this re- related to limitations as well is the Benedictine understanding of humility, mm-hmm. which is we are not called to be all things to all people. <laughs> and that I think is really beautiful and really connects with identity in a lot in, in many ways, because as we learn more and more like our title, who we are, we also learn more and more what our limitations are. And there's humility in that, in that we aren't to be 
like you realizing at a certain point in that story that you just told that you needed to start saying no um and that you weren't easygoing that actually that wasn't something you wanted to do and so then that there would be humility in that i find that also really beautiful Mm -hmm. and and the just i think to give people that word uh the humility is also just being responsive to our our listeners who are people of faith, understanding that what God is actually calling them to, like Mm -hmm. universally, like the things that he calls all of us to, and then sort of the situational things. We tend to like really go for the situational stuff. Like we want to know that we're called to this person or this job or this career or this country, but we don't often think about the fruits of the spirit. You know, like mm. love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, you know, all these things. Yeah. And we're like, no, we're called to those too. And if ways of being that we're inhabiting are taking us further away from those and we're running against the grains and of, you know, the, the getting sand in the gears of uh, our identity, it's like, yeah, this is breaking down. I'm running hot. Like, yeah, I'm probably up against a limitation. What, what mm. does that say to me? What am I to do now? Who am I to be now? And, uh, you know, there's that old adage in Christianity that it's like, basically, God is always going to call you to something that's just inordinately painful. <laughs> and and I think there's something to that, but uh, constantly grinding the gears of who you are, like that stuff comes, you know, that, that can become apparent. So I think that's also a, a thing to look out for mm-hmm. is the arbiter of like, who am I? It's like, what am I supposed to be? Who am I called to? Hmm. Um, and that's really good. so I'm hope I'm hoping that's helpful to other people as well. Cause it, it can be hard to know when to say no and how to know who you are. I would also say, figure out who the people are that you really trust. Speak confidently in your life. Don't make a, don't make a list of 20, but if you have a list of two or three, you should consider yourself blessed, but you should also talk to those people. Um, find a trusted advisor who you feel safe with them telling you what they see in you. Cause a lot of times we don't have the best view of it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. What you said regarding your friends and, and community through your life, helping to identify who, who you were, you know, and we can't figure out, we think maybe we are, st- we can figure out who we are through, Instagram and social media and, you know, uh, books. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, through community is a riskier way, but, uh, actually a lot more fun too and more true. That's right. So this has been really fun, David, until the next conversation. Life's not a sequence program from the sky.